and for him to come out and say that publicly is uh, a pretty good indication because I imagine the Catholic Church and the Pope have a pretty good feel for what's going on in the world. So there are many, many people now who are saying that this thing is coming like a freight train. I don't know just how long it will take, and I will not even speculate on that, but Zephaniah 1 is coming around pretty fast, I think, with the collapse that is to come. So it's not just Bible prophecy, but many people in the world who recognize what's happening in the financial world realize this thing is getting very shaky. And Russia just made a deal with, uh, uh, to, with China, for one, but they're making it with others to sell gas, to sell oil, and to do all their trade in their national currencies and get rid of the dollar, which has been the one currency that everyone has had to use to this point. Uh, we have bombed any nation who threatened to get out of line on that in and we're thinking of doing it with Iran right now because they are starting to do the same thing. So, but how do you bomb Russia and China <laughs> and all of those countries when their militaries are, at this point, just about as potent as ours? So, uh, now is a good time to be watching carefully. Now is a good time to be preparing spiritually, if not physically, because there are some very, very disastrous happenings not very far down the road now. It's, it's getting very close. We used to look at Bible prophecy and say, well, these things have to happen, these things have to happen, and it seemed to be put off and put off, uh, but now we see them happening before our very eyes. So uh, it's, it's going to be pretty grim pretty soon. Now, to the sermon... <coughs> We've been discussing for several sermons now how God would build a temple, uh, how he would go about it, materials he would use, and so on. And we did discuss, at least cursorily, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the mobile temple, if you will, and what great care uh, God used in the, the pattern and the meaning that was tied up in it. We looked at the glory and majesty of Solomon's temple, and what went into that, and the very, very careful preparations that had to occur in order to make that something that would please God, and that he would be willing to put his glory in. Uh, I think I discussed a little bit in Ezra uh, in terms of Ezekiel's temple. Uh, well, to back, back up just a moment on that, Ezra and Nehemiah were built, were involved in building both the temple and later the wall of Jerusalem and Nehemiah after they came out of the 70 years captivity in Babylon. Not much detail is given there in terms of exactly what materials were used. It mentions wood, I think, and stones. Uh, it does speak quite a little about the temple vessels of gold and silver, uh, which were which came out of the treasury of Babylon in order to be put in the temple when it was built. So there you have three temples built. That one uh, later went into disrepair, and Herod remodeled it, if you will, uh, built it back as close as he could, I guess, to what it had been. 
And that's pretty much the history of temples that have been built, at least physical temples, through history uh, in terms of Israel and God. Then we discussed somewhat Ezekiel's temple. It gives the size, it gives the pattern. It does not say much at all about the materials themselves. It says go to the uh, mountains and bring wood and build a temple, I think it is, in Haggai. But uh, it doesn't give a lot of detail there in Ezekiel. But no one has attempted uh, through history to construct that temple that we find in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Uh, It is possible that that needs to be done in the end time, and maybe we'll see a little more about that as we go on. But I want to turn now to the end time. You'll remember the prophecy there in Matthew 24 uh, where they ask Christ what would be the signs of the end uh, and of his return. He also mentioned, I think, in verse 2 that the temple that was there that Herod had restored would be torn down and not one stone left upon another. So that was a prophecy he made at that time. I'm kind of curious in a way if that prophecy has been fulfilled and here we are at the end time and we have a lot of events to look at in terms of the scriptures and what must be done from today and forward. Uh, as far as God's temple, be it spiritual or be it physical or whatever. But the Jews think that the so-called Wailing Wall and the city of Jerusalem that exists in the Middle East is the west wall of the temple, of Herod's temple. Now, I have to scratch my head on that. If Christ said it would be cast down and not one stone left upon another, how can the west wall of it still be there stacked up rock upon rock uh, is what they call the wailing wall. Did Christ know what he was talking about? Or are the Jews going and wailing before something that is not and was not Herod's temple? Now I want to go back first of all today into Leviticus 26 uh, combined with Deuteronomy 28, we have always looked upon these two chapters as the blessings and cursings that God pronounced would happen upon Israel, uh, whether they were obedient or disobedient. Blessed or cursed? I think this has been understood in terms of the end time all through, or pretty much all through, the end time history of the Church of God that Christ established. Uh, I remember sitting with my uncle and my parents back in the early 50s uh, when I was only eight, nine years of age, and we would talk about these two chapters, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, quite frequently because they had been mentioned in the plain truth as, as fitting with the end time and that they were prophecies that weren't only for ancient Israel back then, but for the latter days. And in fact, I think it is in Deuteronomy 28 that it even mentions that it was a prophecy for the latter days, that these things would occur. 
So here in Leviticus 26, I want to just uh, touch upon one section of it, beginning in verse 31. The curses are being discussed here. I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors, and I will bring the land into desolation. And your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it, and I will scatter you among the heathen, and will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. So, this is a prophecy for the latter days. In Deuteronomy 28, he said, If you go into captivity and you come out and you disobey again, I will send you to Mitzrayim in ships across the sea. Verse 34, Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. And you be in your enemy's land, even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. So, the cursing on the land is that it or the people, really, was that their land would lay desolate so the land could get its rest. They had not followed the dictates of God in terms of land rest and jubilee and so on. So God said, I'm going to cause it to happen. Now let's combine that prophecy clear back in Leviticus with some others to lay a background for where I want to go with the end-time subject of the temple or temples. Uh, we have been over these before, but I want to remind us of them and reread some of them uh, in this light <clears throat> and in the light of Leviticus 26, which we just examined. So if you would turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Now this section, I believe, has to do with Right here, at the end time, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, obviously are latter-day prophecies. Uh, they have been, some of them, fulfilled in the past as a minor fulfillment. But the major, final fulfillment of all these prophecies is coming about today. And the conditions that we read here are about today. And we'll see that in Daniel very clearly in a little while. But here in Isaiah 61... Uh, he says he is going to begin to turn things around and in verse 2 to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal and the day of vengeance of our God now that puts it at the end time right there that statement alone when is God going to wreak his vengeance upon the disobedient of this world and even more particularly perhaps upon disobedient Israelites To appoint to them that mourn in Zion, <clears throat> those who go to Zion are a part of the church. There's, there's two levels of Zion I think we need to consider. And that is the Zion, which is the church in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. And the literal Zion, where the Bible says God will take his people to refuge or the place of safety. Petra isn't in there. That's a Protestant idea. 
But if you do a word study on Zion, you will find that Zion is the place of God's protection all through the Bible. Many scriptures in the Psalms. But those that mourn in Zion, the church is mourning because it has been scattered. And even those who start to come to Zion to obey God are still going to go through a certain amount of trial, trouble, and tribulation here at the end. But it'll turn around, it says. I'll give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the plantings of the eternal, that he might be glorified. You can tie that in with Isaiah 41. Uh, there is a new work that is begun there in chapter 40 of Isaiah. I believe Hezekiah 30, I mean Hezekiah ending up in, in uh, Isaiah 39 is or was a type of, or Herbert Armstrong was a type of, uh, of Hezekiah, whose sons basically were uh, made eunuchs in Babylon after Herbert Armstrong died. It says there that uh, Hezekiah would see that happen to his sons, and he says, but there will be peace in my day. So Herbert Armstrong basically died with a certain amount of peace still in the church, and after that it came apart as the church went into a splintered situation and had no power, no strength, no ability to reproduce in the Babylon that it has gone into. So there is a turning there in Isaiah 40 of a voice crying in the wilderness, and God shows what the message is to be there. And he says in chapter 41, he will plant seven trees in the wilderness. Ezekiel 17 shows at the, in the last two verses that he is going to take a twig uh, and plant it to grow something new after uh, worldwide Church of God is gone, which is the subject of Ezekiel 17. So he's going to start turning things around <clears throat> and plant some trees of righteousness here in the end. And they shall build the old wastes, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. Now, what Isaiah is describing here is that the cities of Judah, the cities of Israel, Jerusalem, that which God decreed should have its rest, the land in Leviticus 26, is going to be desolate for many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. So, people who are righteous in the end time, and note that is a condition. There'll be trees of righteousness, and the ones who are that will be the ones who build the old waste places that have been desolate for many generations. Now, that should begin to give us a clue as to the current state of Jerusalem and the original promised land. Here is an end-time prophecy. It has to be currently desolate. We'll see that backed up over and over, and especially as we get into Daniel. 
<coughs> Notice Jeremiah 9, to add one more to this. I'll read one each from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. There are others, but it, we've heard it, and I don't want to belabor it. But I want to introduce it to show you, or to review at least, where we are headed and what must be done here in the end time. And that's why I started with the temples in the past and how God handled those, what he did, how he did it, as a pattern for what must yet be done. But let's establish, first of all, that it has to be done. Then we'll get more into detail about what, where, when, and how. Jeremiah 9, verse 11. I will make Jerusalem heaps. Heaps means piles of rubble. And a den of dragons, place where lizards dwell. And I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. That means unoccupied, empty. No one living in those ancient cities that were there at the time that Jeremiah wrote this. Who is the wise man that may understand this? You know, Her Herbert Armstrong told us back in, I don't know, the 50s, 40s maybe even, uh, I remember on the radio broadcast in the 50s, how Babylon would become desolate. He picked up on those scriptures about Babylon being destroyed and becoming desolate and no one living there. But he never picked up on, as far as I can remember, Jerusalem being desolate, or the cities of Judah being desolate, and no man dwelling there, and it being that way for many generations. How many of you ever saw that? I didn't. I don't know how many times I've been through all these prophecies, I mean, you know, decades ago. I never picked up on that, but it's there. In print, just as much as it is about Babylon. So who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Eternal has spoken, that he may declare it? For what the land perishes and is burned up like a wilderness, that none passes through. Well, God apprised Jeremiah, obviously, of the situation, and he wrote it down for us. So here it is for us to read. Jeremiah was a wise man given this understanding by God and wrote it down for the future. Uh, let's pick up Ezekiel 36 now. And verse 8. Well, let's, let's start in, in, uh, yeah, in verse 8. I, I guess I said that. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel. For they are at hand to come. So he's speaking of a time here when the land will again become productive because the people of Israel are on their way or at hand to come or will be there shortly. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, even all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited, and the wastes shall be builded. So these cities, these areas, have been waste for a long time. And I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bring fruit, 
And I will settle you after your old estates in your original land where I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob you would be. Your old estates. And will do better to you than at your beginnings, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. Now, he's already restored this nation, most of this continent, to the peoples of Israel uh, in the 1600s, when they came back from being scattered among the nations. Well, we have defiled the land again. But meantime, the land here, originally promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remained desolate, specifically Jerusalem and the ancient cities of Judah. I think I know where Jerusalem originally was. I don't know where all the cities of ancient Judah were. That information will have to turn up fairly soon for these prophecies to be fulfilled, to even know where they were. I think I know how that will happen, but we shall see. Now let's go... In addition to those, to one more back in Isaiah 58, because this is an important chapter to consider. It's one where things are not as they should be, so God requests fasting and prayer to get things right, to raise the voice like a trumpet and show his people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. So it's a pretty... Uh, bleak situation that we have here at the end. And he says they seek me daily, but goes on to explain that it's just basically lip service, and yeah, there's a God, and yes, we pray, but the heart is not in it. So he describes the kind of fast he wants, and it will accomplish something. Verse 6, is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke, and then to deal your bread to the hungry, to give to those who have need. And if that spir- those spiritual conditions are met, verse 8 says, Then shall your light break forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily. So here's a people that we just read in Isaiah 61, who will be called trees of righteousness, who will have the righteousness of God. That's what he needs to do, what needs to be done. Now let's see what they will then do. Verse 11, The Eternal shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. Amos 8 speaks of a famine not of bread, but a famine of the word. And other scriptures show that there will be a famine of both. Both the word of God and ultimately of bread. That is also coming upon us as the world food supplies diminish and the population grows. (coughs) Anyway, he'll make fat your bones and you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. So these are promises to those who will become righteous who will fast for the right reasons and undo the wickedness that is within us all. Now notice what he says they will do. Verse 12. They that shall be of you 
shall build the old waste foundations of many generations. So again, it's emphasized that what is to be built in the end time is to be those foundations which have been broken, gone, desolate for many generations. So in order for this to be fulfilled, it has to be in a place that has been that way up to the time that the building is done. Okay? If you look at the Middle East and that Jerusalem, it has never been desolation for many generations in its history. That city has been taken into captivity. It has been defeated. Its walls have been partially broken down, but immediately rebuilt. And there have always been people there through known history. So it is not sitting there today, desolate, having been that way for many generations, where God will cause to be rebuilt the cities of Judah and the old waste places. The foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in, the paths of righteousness. There is a breach between God and man, and there is a breach between even true believers of God's Word and God. Spiritual Israel and physical Israel both have a breach, a gulf, a divide, an estrangement, and it has to be by people who are righteous. Now, I want to tie that in with another thought because there are many, many people on the earth today who think that the Jews are going to build God's temple on Mount Moriah in the Middle East uh, in the old city of what they call Jerusalem today. They see the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim uh, edifice, as being in the way, and that wailing wall is down below there on the, on the west. Uh, so they think the Jews are somehow going to build time. That is something the Jews uh, look to. It is something Protestants look to. It is something Catholics uh, think will happen. So that is something that the world has been waiting for. I have read accounts over the years about how uh, the Jewish people themselves, the physical Jews, have already manufactured the pieces and parts and have them waiting. I don't know that it's true. I have not seen them. But I've read articles and seen pictures and various things uh, saying that that is to occur. So it's something that perhaps in a sense the whole religious world and maybe even some who are non-religious expect the Jews to do. I have a question for you. Will that be, if they decide to build one, if they can clear the Dome of the Rock off, will that be God's temple that they build? Now, we've already seen several scriptures that say that what God builds is going to be in desolate and waste places where people have not been living, for starters. Now, let's consider Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Here Christ is dealing uh, 
with a group of people in verse 23. Uh, I'll get to the right chapter and it'll help. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? So this context is addressing the elders of the Jews and the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders of the people. Could have been of several different of the groups. Perhaps Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, doesn't say who, but he gives it in general, the priests and the elders of the people, whatever sects they might have been in. So it covers a wider group, perhaps, than just one faction. And I think that's important, considering what he says a little while later. Now, they disputed what he said, and I won't read the whole thing, but let's go down to verse 31. Still addressing them, he says, Truly I say to you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, he had some pretty dire things to say about the leaders of the Jews in that day, like whitened walls of sepulchers and snakes and sons of serpents and uh, cups that were filthy on the inside, even though they looked clean on the outside. So very choice things he said, which uh, made them look really, really bad, didn't it? And why? Because they were really, really bad. And they were not true worshipers of God, even though they claimed Moses and Abraham uh, as their predecessors. God said, you are not of me. And he said, the sinners, of the publicans, those who you look down upon as just the riffraff of society, and the harlots will go into the kingdom of God before you do. So that puts them pretty low on the list, doesn't it? He said that John the Baptist came and preached the way of righteousness. And the publicans and the harlots believed him. And you, when you had seen it, repented not afterward that you might believe him. So then he gives another parable about the householder and so on, which I'll not go through. But let's skip down to... Uh, verse 41, they say to him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will allow out his vineyards to other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their early in their seasons. So they saw that a husbandman who had rented out his fields and was not getting produce would give it to someone else in order to produce what was needed, the right crop. Now, what did Christ have to say about that? He said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Eternal's doing, and it is, marvel and it is marvelous in our eyes? Question mark. Therefore, say I to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. Now, he's already said here that the publicans and harlots would go in ahead of them. And he said, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a people, bringing forth the fruits thereof. So he's looking for the fruits of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit of God, which they did not have, did not demonstrate in any way, and they showed the spirit of Satan the devil. He even told them, 
You worship you know not what in one place, and spoke of them worshiping Satan himself. So they didn't know it, but they were Luciferians. And he made it very clear that that was his opinion of them. So it's going to be given to a people who bring forth fruits of righteousness. And whosoever shall fall on this stone, and he was the chief cornerstone, remember, so he's referring to himself, shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. This is a very severe warning that they had better do what they needed to do to keep him from falling on them. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. So right here, he says all authority of the kingdom will be taken from you Jewish leaders and given to a people of righteousness. Uh, there's another place. Where is that? I, did I miss it? Where, it's, where it says that uh, he would have nothing more to do with them until they accepted the ones that he sent. My eye doesn't fall on that, but they have never accepted the New Testament church which he founded through James, Peter, John, Paul, and others. And they have not accepted Christ to this day, except a few Messianic Jews, so-called, who still do not know the true God. Now I ask you this. Have the Jews gotten any better since then? Has their obedience to God's way been better since he called them all those names back there? No, if anything, they've gotten worse. And their traditions are even more hidebound than they were back then. So God is not going to work through the physical Jews. If they build a temple, which they may, it will not be God's temple. He will not be behind it, with it, for it, or have anything to do with it. It will be a Jewish synagogue or temple, not a temple of God. They do not meet the litmus test of righteousness, which we've seen now in several scriptures, Isaiah 58 and here. People use Romans 3 to show that the Jews have authority. And it says there, what advantage did the Jew have? Well, Paul made it very clear. They had a huge advantage. They had the Old Testament. They had the scripture. They just didn't follow it. They still have it and still don't follow it. And if you go on through Romans 3, you'll see that he says there that there's not one of them righteous. No, not one. And he calls them some choice names just like Christ did. So yes, they had an advantage, but they didn't use it. And Christ said he was taking all authority away from them. People try to use that for a calendar uh, authority, and it's not. The oracles of God were the sayings of God contained in the Old Testament. They didn't have a calendar back in Adam's day, or Moses' day, or Abraham's day, except the calendar in the heavens. There was a 360-day year with 12 30-day months, 
And you didn't have to follow it because it was a full eclipse every 30 days like clockwork. So they didn't have to have a whispered calendar. Now, people try to say today that, well, God just whispered that calendar in, in the Jews' ears, and they're the ones that have control of the calendar. No, he wrote the calendar in the heavens. That's where it is. And all you have to do is be able to read it. And it will tell you everything you need to know about timekeeping. That's all there is to it. They say you've got to follow the Hebrew calculated calendar. Well, it didn't even exist in Christ's day. People have tried to use that argument. Well, Christ followed the Jewish calendar in his day. No, he didn't. It didn't exist. It wasn't even made by Hillel until after 300 A.D., 300 years after Christ was gone, when that calendar with all its rules was devised. Yeah, they had something they followed, and they weren't following what Leviticus and Exodus had told them in Christ's day, because they were keeping Passover a day late then. He was killed on their preparation day for their Passover not God's Passover, which he kept the previous evening with his disciples and then became the Lamb of on the next daylight portion. So to say the Jews have any authority today is wrong, and I won't go into it more here. There's an abundance of material that could be added to that. But I wanted to remind us of it when we're starting to consider some of the things that God says must yet transpire here in this age. And I want to go to Daniel next, because it is indeed an end-time prophecy, and examine some of the things that God says about his sanctuary, about a temple, and about Jerusalem itself. And we needed uh, educated or reviewed some of these scriptures about it before we get there so that we understand the current condition. <clears throat> let's go to, first of all, let's see, Daniel 12. I want to pick up one verse there. Daniel 12. I know we know this, but a, a brief review. Um, well, what's, what's the verse here I'm looking for? Verse 4. Speaking of this book, of the book of Daniel, he says, But you, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. We're at the time of the end now. People are running to and fro all across the face of the earth in a frenzy. Airplanes and boats going everywhere in every direction, crisscrossing the oceans and going everywhere in a way that has never been done in the past. There was intercontinental travel in ancient history, but not like today. And knowledge is increasing exponentially about a lot of different things. A lot of it's useless knowledge, but a lot of it is somewhat useful as well. But this book <clears throat> was to be sealed up and not understood until the time of the end. Now you have commentaries written way back in the 1600s, 1700s that profess to expound the book of Daniel. 
And I'm here to tell you, they didn't, at least not correctly, because they didn't understand the end-time context. They didn't understand the dynamics of what would be in the world. They all referred to it as way back in Nebuchadnezzar's time or some such thing, and the abomination of desolation before Christ ever showed up. Okay? And think that many of these prophecies were fulfilled back then. There are some who realize that these prophecies are still very active and still have to occur. And I'm one of those. I think you are too. But he lays down some conditions and makes some statements here about the end time that should tell us a great deal of what has to transpire between now and the time the tribulation begins and thereafter. So let's go back then to Daniel 8 and pick it up in uh, verse 9. This is talking about, well, let, let me briefly review the story here. You have a goat and a ram. The goat is from the west and goes across the land from the west without touching the ground. I assume that that would mean by aircraft. And then you have a ram that has two horns, and this goat broke one horn of the ram, and then it broke the other horn of the ram. If you go on down, uh, it talks about, in verse 21, an explanation, or 20, the ram is Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. In ancient times, uh, people tied some of the Israelites together in the original land of promise together with the Greek empire. So there is a tie-in in history between this country today, the United States, and ancient Greece. But Media and Persia uh, is apparently that area in the Middle East of Iraq, Iran, and parts of a few other countries there as well, in that land of Mesopotamia, where the second cradle of civilization apparently occurred. Now it says that this goat will break the horns of the ram, and then its horn will be broken. We have already more or less defeated Iraq, although we may go back in there with aircraft, it appears, because of the civil war that is raging there, We'll wait and see whether that transpires or not. Uh, we've been promised that troops wouldn't go in, but maybe some bombing would be done. So we pretty well devastated Iraq and killed millions of people there. And I think that we will then go into Persia. Uh, the people in Iran call themselves Persians. That's what they go by. Uh, it's being set up through Syria and some of the things that are going on but our target ultimately is Iran, because they are starting to sell oil without petrodollars, without the U.S. dollar. And that will destroy the U.S. dollar if very many nations do it. They will not have any dependency on it, no one will want it, and it will become worthless. So I anticipate that we will go there fairly soon and attack Iran, devastate it, and then a company of nations will destroy this nation. There are many, many scriptures that indicate that. I don't know of a better 
way of seeing Daniel 8 than that, because it does tie in with God's people, too. And that's where I was headed, but I wanted to give a little background there first. So, verse 8, it says, Therefore the he, the, uh, the he goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, uh, the great horn was broken. So this is a mighty nation, a great horn, very powerful. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So it will, his area will be divided into four parts. I have seen uh, maps that the New World Order plans on using to divide up the world into ten different uh, areas. Maybe that's the ten nations, the whole globe, as opposed to our thinking years ago that maybe it was ten nations in Europe. But the New World Order people have already drawn lines to divide the world into ten separate areas to be governed. And I, as I recall, there's an overlap in the United States and North America of four different areas. They want it divided up. They want, don't want it to all be one area because of the power that has occurred here in the past. So they'll make part of it under this ruler, part under another ruler or king, uh, and have it divided up so that it cannot come back in power. Now that's what they are uh, expecting to accomplish. And that fits this quite well. <clears throat> And out of one of them came forth a little horn. So, out of the four divisions of our land, the original promised land and that which it was expanded to as God said it would be, the original where Abraham walked here in the southwest and then ultimately it was expanded to the continent. So, out of those four horns will come up a smaller horn. Not as powerful, perhaps, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. So, he is going to come into power. The pleasant land will be that original promised land that he looks toward as well. And it waxed great. So it started out as a small horn as opposed to a huge horn like the United States is today. But it waxed great. Even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Uh, that means people. It doesn't mean angels of God. It doesn't mean the literal burning orbs out in the universe. But it's speaking here of people. And stamped upon them. So this one is going to have some power over the true people, the righteous people of God. Now we've long understood the many who are supposedly members of God's called out ones will go into the great tribulation. We'll read that here in a little bit in Daniel 11 and how many of them will be killed. Uh, Ezekiel 5 and many other scriptures indicate that as well. But, <clears throat> notice that as this individual gets power, verse 11, Yes, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, 
And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So he is going to do damage upon God's true people, some of them, and the sanctuary will be cast down. Verse 12, And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. So this little horn coming up, I believe, in this nation, one of the four rulers, is going to turn against anyone who obeys God. And he is going to try to destroy them all. And as we'll see here in a little bit, he will set up the abomination of desolation. Where? It's spoken of here. Verse 13, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said to that certain saint which spoke, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? How long is this period of time we're talking about here? And he said to me, To 2,300 days, uh, that may instead mean uh, mornings and evenings, because of the morning and evening sacrifice, which would be 1,150 days, not 2,300 days per se. If you use, and it may be back in effect by then, a 360-day year, that works out to three years, 70 days. If you go 365 and a quarter, it's a little longer. But we know from other places that we're going to have a return to the calendar that God originally instituted in the heavens and go back to a 360-day year in order for many prophecies to be fulfilled. Many people recognize the prophetic year is 360 days, whereas the actual year we follow on the calendars is 365 and a quarter. But when some of the prophecies are expressed the way they are, 42 months, 1260 days, and three and a half years, speaking of the same prophecy, you can only have that with a 360-day calendar. So I do believe that by the time the Great Tribulation starts, that three and a half years, uh, we will be back to a 360-day calendar year. Uh, God will change the heavens, even as he's changed them in the past. Witness Hezekiah, where the calendars around the world changed, according to Emmanuel Velikovsky and Worlds in Chaos or Worlds in Collision, one of those books I don't remember for sure at the moment. Anyway, it will remain filthy and then be cleansed after that period of time spoken here. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. And verse 17 then says at the end of the verse, For at the time of the end shall be the vision. The things that Daniel saw in Daniel 8 would be events that would occur at the end of the age. Verse 19, And he said, Behold, I will make you know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. Now let's go to Matthew 24 for a moment. I referred to it briefly earlier, but... Here, uh, 
They were asking Christ in verse 3, when or what would be the signs of his coming in the end of the world or the age? So he's addressing in this chapter then that question, the things that would happen leading up to his return. And he talks about nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom and famines and pestilences and earthquakes in verse 7. And then a persecution coming on God's righteous people. Now we've already seen that there in Daniel about how that little horn will come up and knock down uh, some of those who will shine as stars someday. He tells us if we're righteous and go to the resurrection of the dead in the first resurrection, we'll shine as stars. So that's what Daniel is referring to, is those who are scheduled to be stars. Verse 13 says, But he that endures to the end shall be saved. This is going to be a tough thing. It's not going to be easy. And we have to endure. We can't give up. We must keep moving forward and endure until the end occurs. Now notice verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. That has not been accomplished because the end has not come. Very obviously. There are people out there within the church of God who are trying to accomplish this and meeting nothing but futility because God is not calling nor is God doing much with the church except scattering it today. We were laid a sin, we have been spewed, we have been scattered, and God is giving us no security. We've covered that before. But God does not want you and me to feel secure right now. He wants us to feel insecure. Do we really grasp that, I wonder, sometimes? We have trials, troubles, difficulties, arguments, fights among ourselves, and so on and so forth. And then we begin to feel insecure. That's exactly what God wants. That's why he scattered us in the first place, is to make us feel insecure. That way, we might get on our knees and seek him and find security in God. He does not want us to have security in finances, security in homes, security in our nation, security in the church. He wants us to feel nervous, frustrated, upset, under trial, tribulation, and chastening. That's what spewing out or vomiting forth accomplishes. There is a great purpose for our good in giving us insecurity. Do we realize that? Now, go to God and become secure in Him. He has removed our security in the church quite dramatically, and He's about to remove our security in the nation and the world. It will be a thing of the past in the next months, maybe a few years, but 
I think you can say it in months now. Whether it's 24 or 36 or 3, I don't know. But it's coming soon. So be insecure, brethren, until you find security in God. Faith, trust, and hope in Him. That's what it's all about. That's what He's trying to accomplish to get us to turn to Him with our whole hearts, not give Him lip service. If He is going to do a work that we have already reviewed a bit today through righteous people, then He has to raise some to a level of righteousness that He can use. Now, we've already seen that when it comes time to build a temple, God is very, very specific about what He wants and how He wants it. And He builds with exquisite materials. And if we're to be used to build either a physical or a spiritual temple of God, then we must be spiritually qualified. The end's going to come once the gospel has been preached around the world as a witness. Now, who's going to do that? The two witnesses, obviously. Not all these organizations who are going out there flapping their gums and accomplishing virtually nothing by all their efforts and their millions of dollars that they are spending to try to preach the gospel around the world. It isn't happening, and it won't. When the two witnesses finish their three-and-a-half-year witness to the world... They will be killed, and three and a half days later, the end will come. Revelation 11 states that so very, very clearly. So they are the ones who are going to do it. And he states in verse 15 in this context, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. The world doesn't understand. They think the Jews are going to build a temple in that fairly modern city of Jerusalem in the Middle East and that an abomination will be set up there. No. That's not the right place. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. So when that abomination is set up, You'll flee to the mountains of Judea to the place called Zion throughout Scripture. And it is in the mountains. It is not across the street from that old city of Jerusalem in the Middle East. If you were to flee from that city of Jerusalem to what they call Zion over there, you would have about a three-minute walk, and you would not go into the mountains of Judea in so doing. You would just cross the street, step up on the curb, and go down into a graveyard, which is what they call Zion today. This is speaking of something entirely different. Verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So, there is coming a time when in the temple of God, 
an abomination will be set up, the daily sacrifice will be stopped, and the two witnesses will start that day to give their message to the world. They're told right now, in the first part of Revelation 11, only to measure the altar, the ministry, and the people that worship within the church. And leave out the court of the Gentiles, the rest of the world, until that is accomplished. We can, we'll see that in Zechariah, uh, not today, but when we get there. Let me try to finish up this section then. Uh, this is an end-time prophecy in Matthew 24 leading up to the return of Christ. Now let's go back to Daniel 9 and pick up some more of the story here of events that shall occur and then we'll see what is necessary for there to be in terms of a place for these things to happen in order for the prophecies to be fulfilled. Chapter 9, uh, let's go to verse... 16. Here Daniel is making a prayer, and it is a prayer that he gave because of the 70 years of captivity that uh, Israel had been in in Babylon. <coughs> and it even says that he understood from what Jeremiah had written that it was uh, to come to an end. But it's also written as an end time prophecy. So here is a prayer that needs to become our prayer because it's laid out here in a pattern in a book that is sealed till the end. So the things that Daniel is talking about here then are about the end of the age. The things he's praying about are about the end of the age, not about his circumstance in particular then. What he went through, what he suffered, and what happened, uh, happened then. But this was written for now. All right, uh, verse 16, O Eternal, according to all your righteousness, I beseech you, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, the holy mountain. Now, we are referred to as a church in Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 as Jerusalem, as Judah, as the city of the living God, as uh, all of, all of those analogies are brought together there by Paul to show that he's talking about those who would follow God here at the end of time. And it also has a physical reference, as we shall see. <clears throat> so he is angry at Jerusalem, or spiritual Israel, as well as physical Israel. Verse 17, Now therefore, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and cause your face to shine upon the sanctuary that is desolate for the eternal's sake. Now as a church, worldwide church of God is already desolate. And there were men who stood up in it, in the temple of God, as Second Thessalonians 2, or First Thessalonians, whichever it is, indicates... And I told Herbert Armstrong that in 1981. I've related that to you before. I said, Mr. Armstrong, you do realize that that man stands in the church. And he said at the time, maybe that's Stan Rader. But Joe DeCotch was the man sitting in the room with the three of us. And he is the one who stood within the church of God 
and set up an abomination there and led it with his son back into Babylon and set it on its base there, as Zechariah 5 clearly shows would happen. He also put a lead weight in its mouth and shut it up. And it hasn't been heard from since, or very little. So there is both an analogy here involving the spiritual temple, or the spiritual sanctuary, which already has been defiled, but there's a bigger fulfillment to occur, uh, as Matthew 24 lines out, and as we will see here as we go on through Daniel 9. There is a yet greater fulfillment coming than what we have witnessed already with our own eyes. But the church is still desolate as a result of what the Tkachas did. Verse 18, O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you for our righteousness, but for your great mercies. We understand we were Laodicean. We understand we were self-righteous. We understand we were apathetic. So we can't go to God right now and say, Oh God, because I'm so righteous, bless me. Can't do it. No way. We have not been righteous, therefore we come pleading for mercy. This is an end-time prayer for us. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Eternal, my God for the holy mountain of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, a commandment came forth, and I am come to show you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. So this, again, is an end-time thing. Daniel 8 even stated that it's in terms of the time of the end, it talked about the little horn who would desolate the sanctuary. So this is referring to the time very shortly in front of you and me. Now notice this 70-week prophecy in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin and to, and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. So here is a prophecy that has to do with the very end time and the changing of society, the changing of the world, that Christ will return and is going to rule with a rod of iron. So the events being described here are about the time right in front of us, in which the things he is about to enumerate are going to happen, and they will culminate in Christ returning and bringing peace, holiness, and righteousness to this earth. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem... There is going to be an edict, an order given at some time in the near future to do two things here. To restore and to build Jerusalem. 
Did we not read in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel that Jerusalem and the cities of Judah have been desolate for many generations? So they must be located. They must be rebuilt. Jerusalem of the Middle East is there today and has been continuously for a long, long time. Both the old city and the new city. They have not been desolate. Now here we have a very end time prophecy saying that Jerusalem is to be restored and to be built. How do you build that which is already there? How do you restore that which is already there? This then must be referring to a place that is not now recognized that has been desolate for many generations, and what was originally there will be restored, and it will be rebuilt. Just as Isaiah 58, 61, Jeremiah 9, Ezekiel 36, and other scriptures clearly show us. That is part of the main reason I wanted to address this particular prophecy today in terms of Jerusalem and the temple and the sanctuary, because the sanctuary was within the temple, which was at Jerusalem. So if the temple is, if Jerusalem is not there and the temple is not there, then they have to be restored and be built in order for that sanctuary to be defiled by the abomination of desolation. And there is a 70-week period here in which this prophecy must occur. It begins when the order comes to build and restore Jerusalem and ends within 70 weeks, which is, roughly speaking, about a year and a half. So, from the time that commandment is given to Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, threescore and two weeks. The street, the street shall be built again. That indicates that the streets are gone in Jerusalem, right? Not there anymore. They'll be built again. And the wall, the wall of Jerusalem will have to be built. Well, there's a wall over there right now. How are you going to build what's already built? It's the wrong place. Different wall. The wall, even in troublous times. As I said in the announcement before beginning the sermon today, even the Pope has said there's a financial collapse coming very shortly. And many other prognosticators who are looking at the financial and economic condition of the globe are saying the same thing. And America, above all, has had it. The dollar will become worth less than toilet paper. So it will be troublous times. And that's when this wall will be built, when the edict to build Jerusalem is given. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. This isn't, I've gone into this in detail before. It's not speaking of Christ here. Uh, it's speaking of the two witnesses, particularly of Zerubbabel, the leader of them. He'll be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So God is going to cause Jerusalem to be built back in the area of desolation that it has been in. He'll have the, temper, the temple rebuilt within the area, and then 
it will be destroyed one more time. One more time. The end thereof shall be with a flood or an army, and to the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Christ said in Matthew 24 that the things he was referring to at the end of the age and just before his return would be these things referred to by Daniel the prophet. Okay? So there is coming a time when the original Jerusalem, the original location of the temple will be identified and at some point a command will be given to rebuild. Not the temple particularly here, it may be built ahead of the city, just as in Ezra they built the temple first and then put the walls of the city up later. But this is specific to Jerusalem itself being restored and rebuilt, not necessarily the temple. I do think it probably comes first. But from that time that that edict is given, you have the 70 weeks and then the abomination of desolation is set up. So roughly a year and a half will be allocated to rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem, and then the sanctuary, the temple, and Jerusalem are going to be taken over one more time. The times of the Gentiles, 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days, and that is the day the two witnesses begin to go to the world to preach throughout the tribulation and then be killed three and a half days before Christ returns. So, there is a great deal of work to be done. And when you understand the prophecies of Leviticus and the other prophets, in connection with what Christ said in Matthew, as well as what Daniel laid out, we know that a Jerusalem and a temple must be built. And how this will wind up. Now, perhaps next time, we'll get into some of the circumstances that will lead to this. Who specific will do it? How they will go about it? And many of the questions that might still remain on the table, having gone through this much today. So, I'll pick that up, hopefully appropriately, next week.